I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, friends, and welcome to this week's episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and you've found the podcast where I pick a famous day in history and then tell you what other stories were making headlines around the country and world on the exact same day as that famous event. Today I'm featuring a famous day from history that is particularly fitting to go along with something that will happen in modern times this weekend. I'm talking, of course, about this week's Super Bowl being played in Tampa, Florida on Sunday. Although it might feel like it, there hasn't always been a Super Bowl. I mean, they had to begin somewhere, right? Today's famous date is January 16th, 1967, the day newspapers reported the winner of the first-ever Super Bowl, played the day before in Los Angeles. Nowadays, the Super Bowl, the championship game of American football held every winter, is one of the biggest television events of the year. It's so big that of the top 25 most-watched television events in all of United States television history, 19 of those 25 spots belong to Super Bowls. That's huge. The only event that can claim a spot higher than the Super Bowl was the moon landing back in 1969. It's not uncommon for Super Bowl articles to make front page news, especially the day after the game is played. But back in 1967, the first Super Bowl wasn't that big of a deal, at least not to the newspapers. Only a few papers in the entire country mentioned the game on the front page. Two states that ended up with front page articles were Wisconsin and Missouri. But that's not surprising since the first Super Bowl was played by the Green Bay Packers and the Kansas City Chiefs. So, who won the first game? Well, that would be the Packers. The headline at the very top of the Green Bay Press-Gazette says, Packers capture historic Super Bowl, 35-10. to 10. Details in sports section. This year, the Super Bowl is between the Kansas City Chiefs and Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who beat out the Green Bay Packers to be in the big game. In my household, we're mostly Minnesota Vikings fans, so it's hard to cheer for the Packers. But I admit, I was kind of hoping they'd win so we could have a rematch of that first-ever Super Bowl this week. Anyway, I found it interesting that the one article on the front page of the Green Bay Press-Gazette didn't talk about the actual game at all. You have to turn to the sports section to find out how it all went down. Instead, the article on the front page goes on and on about how the Packers playing couldn't take off because of thick fog back in Los Angeles. Hundreds of excited fans waiting to greet their team in Wisconsin with signs and cheers were instead disappointed and sent home to wait until the next day. The Green Bay Packers coach at the time of their historic win was Vince Lombardi, a man that many people consider to be the greatest football coach of all time. In fact, he went on to lead the Packers to a second Super Bowl victory the very next year. Sadly, he passed away from cancer in 1970, but the Super Bowl trophy has been known as the Lombardi Trophy ever since. Now, talking about the first Super Bowl can be fun, especially if I start talking about some of the best commercials, but that's not what this podcast is about. It's about other things being reported on the same day. So, let's throw open another paper and aim for a touchdown with three fun additional history stories. For my first additional history story today, 
I'm taking an article from the Moberly Monitor Index out of Moberly, Missouri. This headline was found on the front page of the newspaper. And even though it's a Missouri newspaper, there's no mention anywhere of the Kansas City Chiefs or a little game called the Super Bowl on that front page. Instead, it tells a story that was printed all over the country for days and days, not just in a few papers, but in hundreds of papers. Why? Because it was the 60s, and there was a fascination with something that may or may not be true, depending on who you talk to and what you believe. This article's headline says, Experts say flying saucer photos appear authentic. Yes, friends, we're going to talk about aliens. Back in the 1960s, a lot of people were obsessed with the idea that flying saucers and UFOs and aliens might actually exist somewhere. It wasn't a new concept back then by any means, but as space travel took off, the idea that there might be extraterrestrial life became really popular. This article tells of two boys who lived near the Selfridge Air Force Base in Michigan. The oldest brother was 17-year-old Dan Jaroslaw, and the younger brother was 15-year-old Grant Jaroslaw. Living near the Air Force Base, it was extremely common for the brothers to see all manner of aircraft flying around. Sometimes they saw planes, sometimes they saw helicopters, and sometimes they saw UFOs. At least, that's what they reported to authorities in January of 1967. The teenage brothers claimed that they were in their backyard one overcast Monday afternoon, minding their own business, when off in the distance they saw a round aircraft. It was about the size of a helicopter, with a dome top and some sort of antenna-looking device on the back, hovering above Lake St. Clair behind their home. Knowing that they were watching history in the making, the boys grabbed their Polaroid camera and began taking photographs of the strange flying machine. At least one of the photographs also captured a helicopter from Selfridge Air Base in the picture. Grand, the younger of the two brothers, said, The thing just left. It didn't make any noise. It was faster than an airplane and seemed about the size of a helicopter. So, what did the boys do next? Well, they went to the authorities and the news and got a ton of attention for their photos all over the country. The article from the Moberly Monitor Index reported that Dr. J. Allen Hynek had looked at the photos. Now, friends, that was a really big deal because Dr. Hynek was the chairman of astronomy at Northwestern University and also acted as a scientific advisor to the United States Air Force's program called Project Blue Book. Have you heard of that? Honestly, I didn't know Project Blue Book existed until the History Channel came out with their show called Project Blue Book a couple of years ago. Basically, the group was organized to collect and analyze claims of UFOs in the 1950s and 60s mainly. They studied thousands of reports while they were in operation. The TV show about it has Dr. Alan Hynek as one of the main characters, played by Aidan Gillen. Anyway, the real Dr. Hynek looked at the boys' photographs and said that they were strikingly similar to the other pictures of UFOs he'd studied. Another man, Major Raymond Niles, who was the operation coordinator at Selfridge Air Base, said, They have some pretty interesting pictures. They look pretty authentic. And even though Major Niles said the helicopter crew the Air Base had in the air at the time didn't report seeing anything suspicious that day, he went on to say that, quote, the type of person and the type of camera involved would lead me to believe 
this is not a hoax. I'll note here that many newspapers went so far as to print pictures of the brothers and the UFO pictures on their pages. But again, this was more than 50 years ago and the quality isn't that great. It's hard to really tell what I'm looking at. And I'll also note here that this wasn't the first time UFO sightings had been claimed in that area of Michigan. In fact, Dr. Hynek had already come to the area the year before, only to dismiss the previous sightings above the lake as formations caused by swamp gas hovering over the lake. Now, if you remember, the headline I read to you at the beginning of this story said that experts thought the photos were authentic. Let's fast forward two months, and I'll read you a headline from the March 26, 1967 issue of the Arizona Republic. It says, Boys' UFO photos flop with experts. Those experts who were now questioning the validity of Dan and Grant Jaroslaw's UFO sightings were none other than Dr. Hynek and Major Niles. Dr. Hynek removed their sightings from his list of credible reports after Major Niles carved some sort of small model shaped like the object in the boys' photo, made sure it was the right color, and then hung up from the swing set in the boys' backyard with clear fishing line. He stood back and started taking photos with the same type of camera that the boys had used. And guess what? The photos looked pretty much the same. Even though the model was strung up with fishing line, you couldn't see it in any of the photos. Did the boys give in and admit that they were bored since they had to stay home from school that day to help out their ill mother? Nope. They must have liked their 15 minutes of fame because they stuck to their story saying, quote, We saw something out there and we took pictures of it. I don't know what it was, but it was there. It was real. Despite their insistence that they really saw a UFO, the boys took a lie detector test and failed it. What do you think? Were they telling the truth? Or was it just a hoax pulled off by two bored teenagers that gained national attention? I'll post a picture of the boys in one of their UFO photos in the additional history headlines you probably missed Facebook group, and you can decide for yourself. For my second additional history story today, I'm taking a headline from the front page of the Casper Star Tribune out of Wyoming although I could have taken a similar headline from just about every single paper across the country that day. This headline reads, Fire Destroys Half McCormick Place. Chicago, Illinois was known and is still known for hosting big conventions, and the city liked to stay involved in the business world. Part of the city's plan to stay relevant in that role was to build a massive exposition hall. So they began building one along the Lake Michigan shoreline. They named it McCormick Place after Colonel Robert R. McCormick, a man who had at one time been the editor and publisher of the Chicago Tribune and who spearheaded the efforts to get the building built in the first place. Unfortunately, Colonel McCormick passed away just a few years before the building was finished. Anyway, McCormick Place was so big it covered three city blocks and had nearly 500,000 square feet of exhibition space. It covered 10 acres of land. When it was built, the exhibition hall was thought to be fireproof because it was mostly built from steel and concrete. McCormick Place first opened for business in November of 1960. That means it had been in operation for barely six years when disaster struck. So, what exactly happened to the structure? 
Well, a group called the National Housewares Manufacturers Association had been setting up for their big semi-annual trade show that was supposed to open up the day our newspaper was printed. We're not talking about a few booths here, though. Sources varied greatly on this part of the story, but we know that there were for sure over 1,200 exhibits set up, and possibly as many as 2,300 exhibits. Each exhibit had valuable merchandise inside their booths. Thousands and thousands of dollars worth of merchandise. Obviously, McCormick Place wanted to make sure the exhibitors' booths were safe, so they employed private detectives as security guards to keep the area safe not only for those working the expo, but also for the expected 60,000 people who would be attending the show the next day. Around 2 a.m., a janitor walking through the building noticed smoke coming from behind one of the booths. He and some other janitors grabbed brooms and carpets and tried to beat the fire out. Unfortunately, their efforts only made things worse, and the fire quickly spread to other booths. The private detectives on site called for help from the fire department, but with a building full of easily burned housewares, it didn't take very long for the fire to spread through the building. The fire burned so hot that 300 feet of the ceiling collapsed. Fire personnel knew right away that they had a major problem on their hands, and they sent out a call for every available firefighter in the entire city to come to the rescue. This is another place where our sources vary. The Casper Star Tribune reported that 475 firemen answered the call for help, but the Chicago Tribune reported that 2,000 firefighters were involved. Either way, it was a massive, massive undertaking, especially when you consider how much equipment like trucks and cranes those firefighters brought with them. Multiple fireboats even shot water from the lake onto McCormick Place. Now, there was a huge problem that came up almost immediately when the firefighters arrived on the scene. It was a problem that even with all that equipment, slowed down their best efforts. Remember, this story takes place in Chicago in January. It was bitter cold outside, as in barely 5 degrees Fahrenheit. Just thinking about it makes me want to go sit next to my fireplace with a blanket and hot chocolate. Anyway, those cold temperatures froze the fire hydrants around McCormick Place. The fire departments couldn't get the valves open to use any water. They had to bring in acetylene torches to thaw the hydrants before they could even start using them. Meanwhile, the fire was spreading farther and farther across the exhibit hall. Firefighters were finally able to put the fire out by 10 a.m. that day, but the exhibition hall was basically a complete loss. In today's terms, it would be over $100 million dollars. And sadly, one security guard died in the fire when he couldn't find an emergency exit. Employees later said that nobody had ever taught them how to find or unlock those emergency exits. Interestingly enough, the fire at McCormick Place wasn't the first exhibition hall fire that year, and it was only the middle of January. Less than two weeks prior, fire had broken out at the International Amphitheater, Chicago's other major convention center. Luckily, it wasn't quite so devastating. So, what ended up happening with McCormick Place? Well, the city rebuilt the center and it reopened in 1971 and is still operational today, just in a bigger capacity. Nowadays, McCormick Place boasts 2.6 million square feet of exhibition space. Now that's big.
For my last additional history story today, I had a hard time deciding what to talk about. In addition to the Chicago fire, the front page stories mostly consisted of news from the Vietnam War, particularly the fact that the U.S. had resumed bombing near Hanoi. Spouting back details of wars and specific battles within those wars doesn't interest me so much because it's information that can be easily found. On one front page was the story of two children suffocating to death in a cedar chest when they decided to play inside. Another front page told the story of two children who drowned together while playing. And yet another front page wrote of two children that died in a house fire, despite their father's best effort to save them. Those stories and others were too tragic and heartbreaking to tell today, so I decided to go another route, and it has to do with Vietnam. Since so much newspaper real estate on January 16, 1967, was taken up by tales of the Vietnam War, I decided to tell the story of one of the men serving there. This story comes from the Raleigh Register out of West Virginia, and our headline reads, He never fires a rifle, but he's still a soldier. A picture of a young man sitting in a military vehicle accompanies the article. The first time I read this story, it felt like I was reading the story of Desmond Doss, the man who the movie Hacksaw Ridge was based on, except that true adaptation was about World War II, not Vietnam. Instead, this is the story of 21-year-old Dave Kropp. Unfortunately, the article doesn't give us much background information on Dave, I do know that he was born in Caddo, Oklahoma, and that's about it. I have no idea how long he served in the military before the incident in the newspapers happened. What we do know about Dave Kropp is that he wasn't your average soldier. You see, he didn't like guns, and he didn't like the idea of having to kill someone. But Dave's dislike and unwillingness to use weapons wasn't the only thing that made him unique among his fellow soldiers. Dave didn't drink, he didn't swear, and he didn't gamble. The other men that served with Dave called him a square, or a louse, or a fink, and they made fun of the fact that instead of swearing, he yelled, dang, when he was angry. His fellow soldiers also called him a coward, and I can't help but think that was probably one of the labels that hurt the most. Most people thought that Dave, and perhaps Dave even thought it himself, was a conscientious objector. During World War II, there were just under 60,000 conscientious objectors, but during the Vietnam War, that number was almost triple. For many men, their objections stemmed from political views, but that wasn't Dave's case. He was described as a God-fearing man who didn't believe in killing. Dave had grown up in a church without a name. Basically, it was a non-denominational group of Christians who would regularly get together to mingle and chat but there wasn't an official building or headquarters, nobody paid tithing to anyone, and nobody stood at a pulpit and preached. One day, Dave's unit was patrolling out in the jungle when they suddenly walked into a trap and found themselves surrounded by gorillas. The sound of rifles filled the air, digging holes in the ground and tearing bark off trees. The article describes the noise as endless, and hundreds of grenades were thrown at the U.S. soldiers. Men could be heard yelling for help and crying out in pain all over the place. Dave Kropp became their medic and jumped into action without hesitation. To quote the article, it says, He wrapped wounds up with bandages from the victim's first aid pouches. He picked pieces of shrapnel out of fragmented holds. He pulled fallen men back out of the line of fire. 
he cleaned and patched and comforted. The article goes on to describe some of the wounds, saying that one man had his elbow blown off, another had pieces of steel in his cheek, while yet another had a baseball-sized hole in his arm. When Dave saw that one man stopped breathing after being hit multiple times, he spread him out flat on the ground and started artificial respiration. Sadly, it didn't work for that soldier, and he passed away. But that didn't stop Dave, and he continued to work to save as many men as possible. If a man was out in the open, Dave would crawl out to the battlefield on his stomach and begin applying medical treatments. That one battle lasted for 30 hours, and Dave worked tirelessly the entire time, working on at least 25 men. Even though he wasn't able to save them all, there were multiple men that did live because of his valiant efforts. When reinforcements arrived, they handed out cigarettes for comfort. But despite the trial he'd just gone through, Dave passed up the offering because he didn't smoke either. As you can imagine, the men Dave Crop served with gained a new appreciation for him that day. Instead of teasing him and calling him names, they treated him with much-deserved respect. For today's advertisement, I went to The Messenger out of Madisonville, Kentucky, from January 16, 1967. Considering that this podcast is a podcast based on newspapers and their historical significance, I thought this ad was particularly appropriate. It's an advertisement to buy a subscription to the Messenger newspaper. Growing up, we always had the newspaper in our house. As a child, I was mostly interested in the Sunday comics. But as I got older, I started to read the actual articles. My husband and his family grew up delivering newspapers. When I got married, we got a subscription to our local paper and would subscribe to other newspapers whenever we moved. Until the last couple of years, I've always had a subscription. When I moved this past year, I didn't immediately subscribe to the local newspaper because I get breaking news sent to my phone as it's happening and with the pandemic, I was spending most of my time helping my kids with a lot more schoolwork than before and the need just wasn't there. Recently, the local newspaper was handing out gift cards to a nearby grocery store to anyone who purchased a three-month subscription. I decided to give it a try. Since it's not a daily paper, Some of the news is pretty old by the time I get it, and I'm undecided as whether or not I'll actually continue the subscription. But back in 1967, The Messenger was giving out a different gift to entice more people to subscribe to their paper. As the advertisement states, the first 50 people who subscribed for one year would receive a nice, bound copy of the Warren Report. The, quote, controversial report of the Warren Commission on the death of President Kennedy. Nowadays, if people wanted to read that report, or other reports like it, they could easily turn to the internet. But that wasn't possible in the 60s. Newspapers have played a huge and important role in the development of our country, and although their future is uncertain, I will continue to honor their past. Friends, thanks for joining me today as we took a look at what was happening at the same time the Green Bay Packers were celebrating their win over the Kansas City Chiefs. Join me next Monday for another full episode and a brand new Famous Day. Talk to you later.